Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. By now, you've probably heard me talk about my new book, Love Every Day. It will be out in the world in October, but you can pre-order it any time before then. And let me tell you a little something. Pre-ordering is one of the best ways you can support authors and their new books. Why? More pre-orders equals more buzz about the book, and more buzz means reaching even more readers. Because of this, I really want to thank anyone who has already pre-ordered or who will pre-order Love Every Day by offering them two free gifts. You can sign up to receive these goodies by heading to the link in the show notes of this episode or by visiting loveeverydaybook.com. You're going to fill out a quick little form with your proof of a pre-order purchase, like a screenshot of your e-receipt, plus your mailing address and your email. And then you will receive a complimentary Love Everyday journal in the mail. It's so beautiful. And a digital reader's guide in your email inbox. Both of these will arrive in mid-October, right when you're receiving your Love Everyday book. The journal is going to be the perfect place for you to jot down your thoughts and reflections as you read, and the digital reader's guide is full of discussion questions that you can use to spark solo reflection or to spur conversation in a book club, for example. Plus, the reader's guide includes the Love Everyday playlist with some of my favorite songs that celebrate growth, healing, and connection. To learn more about this offering, click the link in the show notes or head to loveeverydaybook.com. If you have questions about the pre-order gifts, email info at dralexandrasolomon.com for support from our team. Thank you so much. Welcome. 
to another solo deep dive episode here on Reimagining Love. We've got ourselves a doozy today. So you know, I use these episodes to tease apart complex relationship dynamics. And I'm especially drawn to those relational knots that our culture tends to give us easy answers to or supposedly easy answers to. And that's because what I've learned over and over and over again is that our romantic relationships will never, ever be easy or simple, not because we're doing them wrong, but because they're complicated. But also our romantic relationships are some of the most powerful teachers on earth. So many opportunities to sit with competing truths and paradoxes and so many opportunities to peel back the layers and see what's hiding out behind supposedly simplistic answers or obvious next steps. And when we do that, when we resist the pull of simplicity, we grow our capacity to tolerate more emotional nuance and more relational nuance. And that's where the good stuff is because when we can hold on to more nuance, we can heal wounds that come with us from the past including wounds from our families of origin. We can learn how to be gentler with ourselves and goodness knows we need that. We can learn how to more deeply love our partner because their imperfections feel less threatening and less confusing and more intriguing and more compassion inspiring. And we can more readily discern whether to stay and invest or end the relationship and move on. And so today I'm going to talk about a phrase that I've been hearing a lot lately, especially in the dating world. And I'm sure that you've heard it as well too. And that phrase is, if they wanted to, they would. So here's what I want to say right up top. You can make the choice to exit an intimate relationship at any point and for any reason under the sun. You can say, this person is not putting in enough effort or they're not putting in the right kind of effort, and therefore, I'm out of here. Because intimate relationships, at least in the way that we talk about them here on Reimagining Love, they're at-will arrangements. If they wanted to, they would, is a sentence that you can use to justify or explain your decision to break up or step away from a relationship at any point in time. Of course, of course, of course. We're just not going to end the story there because that would make for a very, very short podcast episode. So we're going to just kind of thicken it up a little bit and talk about that phrase, if they wanted to, they would. And I feel like in dating especially, people are often encouraged to get rid of people at the first sign of misalignment. And in this episode, I'm going to encourage self-reflection and thoughtful dialogue rather than jumping to conclusions. However, it's also important to say right up top that unmet needs in a relationship can truly and surely be a sign that you ought to consider ending the relationship. So we're going to look in this episode at the kinds of fears and beliefs that lead people to stick a label of if they wanted to, they would across a relationship dynamic to just like kind of smack the dynamic with that label. If they wanted to, they would, period, end of story. We're also going to look at what else might be happening in a dynamic that would lead you to declare if they wanted to, they would. And what else you might do instead besides stick this label on and walk the heck right out the door. 
So I understand the allure of this declaration. It's super catchy. (laughs) It offers the promise of clarity, of ease. If A, then B. If not A, then not B, right? If they wanted to, they would. Therefore, if they aren't, then they don't. It's super logical. It's super rational. And of course, in intimate relationships, we crave clarity. We crave ease because the stakes are so flipping high. We're investing our time and our energy, neither of which is limitless. And especially in the early stages of dating, we're opening ourselves up to another person. We are exposing ourselves. We're beginning with even just our little baby toe to begin to trust someone else. We're making ourselves vulnerable to someone else. This is risky business for sure. And this is the kind of business that has the power to activate stuff from our past in pretty powerful ways. So I think sometimes, you know, we're looking for an exit door. If they wanted to, they would. And sometimes that little phrase serves as an exit door to get the heck out of the discomfort comfort of having to challenge ourselves bit by bit, step by step to trust, to be vulnerable, to risk. And so we crave a metric that can tell us upfront that the reward is worth the risk. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a therapy session with a client and I have wanted that crystal ball. I wanted to be able to see into the future and to know what is actually possible in this relationship, how it's going to turn out. I wanted it in my personal life as well. It's so understandable that we want to have some diagnostic test that we can run that tells us if it's worth continuing to invest or not. And when we do that, we forget that actually every step that we make along the way changes the course of the relationship, right? It's not just sort of a fixed entity. This is either going to work or not work. The chances of it working are in an iterative, step-by-step way, shaped by our behavior and the degree to which the other person can match and meet and amplify our behavior. So the best we can do is take the data that is right in front of us and use that data to guide our next choice, to do the next right thing, and then the next right thing again and again, step by step as the relationship builds. And all the while, we're asking our future self to promise not to shame this present self. And all the while, we are wanting this future self to remember that this present self is doing the best they can do with the information and the awareness that is available at this moment. And rather than labeling something a waste of time, quote unquote, and slipping into a place of regret and beating ourselves up, we can promise ourselves that we will hold on to that hard-fought emotional nuance and self-compassion, which says, ugh, it's so painful that the relationship didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. And at the very same time, there are learning opportunities in this experience for me. Okay, so the bottom line here is that we sometimes look for easy answers, if A, then B. If they wanted to, they would. Because we are trying to protect ourselves from risk, from vulnerability, from regret, from pain. So I think that as a general rule, that behind any dating rule or maxim or piece of prescriptive advice that our culture creates, there exists some fear. 
Sometimes someone who makes a strong declaration is trying to impose fear on someone else. For example, think about somebody who's trying to sell something in you know, media or social media, trying to sell a course or a book or a program. They will sometimes build it off the idea that there are these specific pieces of advice that guarantee success. And if you follow these, they will lead to love. And of course, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. So that's kind of this like fear-based selling idea. And sometimes someone who's making a strong declaration is experiencing fear themselves, fear that they may have inherited from any number of places, from the parents who raised them, from the media they consume, even from their close and loving friends. And I've seen how strong notions about dating can feel almost like armor for people. And this is true for people of all gender identities and all gender expressions. I think it's especially strong for women who are dating men. And in the case of a heterosexual relationship, a woman who declares a dating rule to a friend or to herself may appear and may feel confident, self-assured, and wise. But what I know for sure is that we armor up, as Brene Brown calls it, we armor up, we get self-protective for very, very, very good reasons, especially when it comes to dating. We armor up you know, out of someplace understandable. Perhaps that person who's declaring if they wanted to, they would from a place of self-protection was hurt very badly in the past when she gave someone so many chances to show up for her. And that person never truly respected her time or her expectations or her needs for the relationship. And so then consciously or subconsciously after she was hurt, she said to herself, never again. So now she's almost flipped to the opposite extreme and she's hypervigilant for any signs of low commitment or quote unquote, less than ideal behavior. So that if they wanted to, they would is something that's leveled quickly at the first sign of something that is less than ideal, less than fully present, less than fully obvious. And she may go so far as to even tell herself that if she gets into one of these situations again, she's only going to have herself to blame because she wasn't cautious enough, because she was a fool for waiting for someone else in any kind of way. She may also feel the need to adhere to and kind of disseminate or spread these statements to give herself a sense of control and protection within a low commitment dating culture. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know I talk about this kind of low commitment dating culture where there's high volume, lots of swiping, lots of um, kind of open threads of communication without very much investment. So in a situation like that, control and protection are understandable and necessary adaptations to a context that feels unsafe, to a context that feels confusing. And so her fear probably comes from lots of cultural sources, even beyond her own relationship history. So there may be some relationship history there, a prior wound where she was hurt. And so now she's got a very, very low threshold and she's going to very quickly say, if you wanted to, you would you're not, so I'm out of here. But also these cultural pressures, these cultural variables. For example, women receiving that nearly constant messaging that their worth is dependent on their ability to secure a partner by a suitable age, 
et cetera, et cetera, to be, you know, to have a family, to be a good mother. Even if she's not clear that's what she wants for her life, that outside pressure finds a way to creep in. So that fear of wasting her time with someone who's not putting in effort feels especially poignant, I think. And I want to make a distinction here between these dating rules, as I'm talking about them, versus personal standards or personal boundaries. So a dating rule might sound more like this. If he splits the bill with you on the first date, he does not value you. Like a sweeping declaration like that with no context and no kind of deeper roots to it, just a sweeping. If he splits the bill with you on the first date, he does not value you. If you're texting them more than they're texting you, they don't really like you. Or if the sex is not great, right off the bat, the relationship is doomed. So we could make an entire episode about any one of those, why we might feel pulled to make a sweeping statement and what gets lost, what we're missing when we don't honor all the complexity, all the little subtle nuances that are possible around any one of those declarations. However, by contrast, we all get to have personal boundaries. We all get to have standards. So that might sound like if I don't feel listened to in a relationship, I'm going to raise that as an issue. Or I am not open and available to date somebody who's struggling with an active addiction because of my experiences and my family of origin. Or I value humor and ease in conversations with a potential partner, and I want to find someone where I can share this kind of connection, right? Those are things that you desire. They're not kind of those sweeping statements that are solely dependent on what somebody else is doing. So for our purposes here, we're talking about that phrase, if they wanted to, they would, as part of that first category, that blanket statement that is applied quickly and readily and perhaps without a lot of data or oomph to back it up. Of course, of course, of course, you get to have structure and rules of engagement and boundaries and standards for yourself and relationships. That's helpful. That's empowering. As long as you are practicing relational self-awareness, as you make and articulate your personal boundaries, your personal standards, whose voice is telling me that standard or rule that exists inside of my head? Is it my own voice? Is it someone else's voice? Is it a reflection of some sort of cultural message I've internalized? What makes me particularly reactive about this particular behavior that the other person is exhibiting or not exhibiting? Why does that bother me so much? What is it from my past, perhaps, that creates such a tender spot there for me? Is the strength of my reaction a result of something from my past versus a reflection of the severity of this present day situation? And finally, how would I handle this situation with this person if I had an unshakable belief in my ability to handle myself and to come out okay on the other side? Sometimes those rules reflect a fear that I don't know that I can handle myself, you know, going through this again. So how might I handle the situation if I had an unshakable belief in my ability to handle myself and come out okay on the other side? So this phrase, if they wanted to, they would, can surely be used by anyone in any context. But in this episode, I am finding myself tending to lean towards talking about this as a phrase that women say frequently 
to themselves or to other people about the experiences they're having dating and building relationships with men. Okay, so I'm, that's where we're going to kind of focus our lens today. I'm not super comfortable making the choice to do that because you know that I pride myself on creating content that is inclusive and holistic. And for the purposes of this particular episode, I'm finding it important to center the ways that patriarchy and heteronormativity and what Adrian Rich calls compulsory heterosexuality inform and shape when and why and how we use this phrase. So there's a particular tone that phrase, if they wanted to, they would, particular tone that phrase takes on when it's a woman saying this about a man or somebody who is socialized in the feminine, talking about somebody who's been socialized in the masculine. Because research has found that gender role expectations, what men should do, what women should do, play out most rigidly and narrowly in the arenas of dating and sex and intimate relationships. So when we're talking about this phrase, if they wanted to, they would. We're saying that somebody's coming up short. Somebody isn't trying hard enough. Somebody isn't exerting enough effort. And that somebody can certainly be a person of any gender identity, of any gender expression. But I'm positing that that phrase takes on a unique flavor when it's spoken by a woman about a man. What the phrase is actually then is, if he wanted to, he would. The reason that the phrase takes on a particular meaning when it's if he wanted to, he would, is because of two big undercurrents. Number one, we expect men to initiate and lead during courtship. And we declare then that there's a problem if he's not taking the lead. We think that something is wrong with him or something's wrong with her or something's wrong about the relationship if he's not clearly and decisively taking the lead. And number two, we have a somewhat newer collective awareness about the sheer volume of invisible labor that women do in intimate relationships, especially in intimate relationships with men. Invisible labor is domestic labor. It's mental load. It's also my new, very favorite kind of invisible labor, which is called hermeneutic labor. Okay, so indulge me in like a very brief, nerdy side street. Hermeneutic labor is a term that was coined in 2023 by Pomona College philosophy professor Ellie Anderson. Hermeneutic labor is the energy required to understand and coherently express your own feelings, desires, intentions, and motivations, as well as to discern those of others and to invent solutions for relational issues that arise from interpersonal tensions. That's all from her brand new and very brilliant academic article. Okay, so hermeneutic labor is the effort that by and large falls to women to make sense of their own internal worlds and figure out how to convey that clearly to their partners, as well as the energy of helping their partners make sense of their internal world and understand it and articulate it. And Anderson argues that these tasks of hermeneutic labor fall predominantly to women who she says are widely seen as, quote, relationship maintenance experts. And so if a man isn't putting in effort, at least early on, 
it's viewed as a poor prognostic indicator for the relationship, right? If he's not stepping up and taking the lead and being clear about his intentions, his motivations, and his behavior, you're basically looking at a life of kind of over-functioning and doing all of this labor. So it makes sense. I get it. I don't even think I necessarily disagree. I just think we have to really keep our lens wide and make sure that we're taking responsibility for the ways in which we might be contributing to a dynamic where effort isn't equally matched or where we aren't able to tolerate the fact that there is give and take and we can't exactly quantify who's giving what in what context every single moment of the time. And by the way, if you want more on these themes of relational reciprocity and invisible labor, make sure you check out a couple of past episodes of Reimagining Love. One is episode 33, which is called Understanding the Overfunctioning, Underfunctioning Dynamic. And the other is episode 69 with Eve Rodsky, all about invisible labor and gender and domesticity. Both of those Reimagining Love episodes are linked in the show notes. If they wanted to, they would, is a declaration about a lack of what I call relational reciprocity. That's the give and take, the back and forth that plays out between two people. That give and take, that back and forth is the stuff of intimacy. Intimacy is transacted in the space between two people. You know how therapists love to say that love is a verb. Love is a verb. Attraction is a verb. Interest is a verb. These are stirrings that happen inside of you, but they are manifest in your behavior. I cannot climb inside of Todd Solomon's brain and see how he thinks about me. I cannot climb inside of Todd Solomon's heart and feel how he feels about me. There's no blood test. There's no paper and pencil survey that can give me a quantitative measure of how he feels about me. I only have two measures available to me. My felt sense of what it feels like to be near him, how I feel in my body near his body, and two, my observations about his behavior. That's it. In that way, love and intimacy are made real in the space between two people. They're made manifest in the space between us. And so that's why, you know, we're using these clues, we're using these cues, and we're making meaning of them. If they wanted to, they would. That's deriving meaning, making meaning from some observed behavior or the absence of a behavior. So let's play with an example for a moment. Let's say you've started seeing somebody new and the two of you have been going on dates pretty consistently for a few weeks, let's say, and you have started to develop feelings for him. I'm going to use him in this example. To your knowledge, he's also enjoying getting to know you, but the two of you haven't made it official and you haven't had the DTR conversation, the define the relationship conversation. And one night, you hear from a mutual friend that this guy you're seeing was at a big party and he brought a bunch of his friends and you feel hurt that he didn't invite you and you even start to wonder if he did not want to spend time with you or if he did not want to introduce you to his friends or maybe even that he feels ashamed to be dating you. And your negative thoughts continue to spiral and you start to feel pretty crappy about yourself and about where this relationship is going. 
but you feel torn because you want to hold out hope because you really like this person. So you bring up this experience to two of your close friends. And friend number one says, maybe he just wanted a night out with the guys. Or maybe he's not ready to introduce you yet because that wouldn't have you know, been the right setting. Or maybe he's worried that you'd feel pressured or that you'd judge him for moving too fast if he invited you to go to this party with all the friends. Friend number two <laughs> chimes in and says, maybe, but all I'm going to say is if he wanted to, he would. <laughs> Friend number two is saying, if he wanted to invite you to the party, he would have. And because he didn't invite you to the party, that means he didn't want you there. But also implied in her statement is, if he wanted to spend time with you and date you for real, he would. But he's not doing that, so you can safely assume he doesn't want to be with you, and you should probably leave before you get hurt. It's a packed message, isn't it? And listen, I have a lot of compassion for friend number two. Friend number two is a fighter. She's feisty. She feels protective of you. She feels like you best cut and run before you get hurt. It's probably hard for her to see you distraught as a result of this guy's actions or inactions. But I also worry about the impact of her words and the many assumptions that she's making about him and about this relationship. And Both these friends are making meaning out of his behavior before you've attempted any conversation with the guy in question. If you go with friend number two's assumption, you're likely going to come to your own conclusion and you're going to skip over the opportunity to raise your concern, to make your voice heard with him, to get his side of the story. By stamping a simple, if he wanted to, he would label on this incident you decide for both you and for him that this isn't working because he does not like you enough. And you bypass the vulnerability, the messiness, the discomfort, and the growth that comes from initiating a courageous conversation. In this scenario, you can't exactly know what led him to the decision to not invite you to the party. And it would be pointless and potentially harmful to you to try to guess from afar. Yes. Perhaps he was being inconsiderate and does not see you as a serious potential partner and does not really plan to invite you to anything. And perhaps this was the first of what would be many hurtful exclusions. That is certainly possible. Maybe he's wanting to move at a slower pace than you in this relationship or wait until other relationship milestones have been met before introducing you to his friends. Pace discrepancies, as I call them, are totally, totally inevitable. They're really tender, but they're inevitable. The chances that you both are going to decide at the same moment that it is now time to meet the friends, those chances are slim to none. And the two of you might have different built-in notions of what comes first, second, third. Maybe he's thinking that you need to meet his parents before his friends. And maybe he's thinking that you need to travel before you meet, who knows? But this idea that the two of you would have the exact same pacing and the exact same preferred sequencing of relationship milestones is very, very slim. You can also listen to our episode about pace discrepancies, which is also linked in the show notes. We've been around for a while now here on Reimagining Love. So we're building this robust uh, library of all kinds of topics. So we have a whole episode on pace discrepancies. Okay, 
Another hypothesis, maybe he wanted a fun night out with his close friends who were visiting from out of town, and he had no sense that the two of you are even at the point in relationship development where the expectation is that you guys would update each other on social plans. In this hypothesis is a reminder of why define the relationship conversations need to happen early and often and why we should have a very, very, very low threshold of bringing up the question of where are we? What are these expectations, right? It's far better to ask for clarification than feel frustrated about unmet expectations. It certainly is ideal to be proactive about defining who you are to each other before there's been an unmet expectation and a bunch of disappointed feelings. But life happens, stuff happens, and an incident like this, where there is a measure of disappointment, an incident like this can be a great catalyst for two people to clarify and make agreements that suit them both. My last hypothesis is maybe he really wanted you there, but he was afraid to ask for fear that you would feel smothered or quote unquote love bombed, as they say. And this, my friend, is problem number 639 with the heteronormative sexual script. If we're going to place all of the agency in the hands of the male partner, then he has to not just initiate, but also titrate. He has to show enough leadership that she understands that he's interested, but not so much leadership that she feels like he's pushy or needy or clingy or smothery. This is why we need both partners, all partners of any gender identity, of any gender expression to feel fully able to initiate, to check in, to propose what the next step might be. So this list of hypotheses could go on and on and on. What's my point? My point is that friend number two might be totally correct that this guy ultimately does not care that much about you. But friend number two might be really, really, really missing the mark. And if you go ahead and absorb her point of view, you deny both you and this potential partner the opportunity to have the kind of rich and vulnerable conversation about both of your feelings in this moment and about the state of the relationship more broadly. So in order to have that conversation, you would have to be brave enough to open the door to that conversation and to open that door in a way that invites dialogue rather than in a way that invites defensiveness. For example, hey, My friends and I were catching up and they shared that they saw you at a party last week. You are, of course, of course, of course, open to do what you want, when you want, how you want. But I'm aware that I had a reaction to hearing that news. I'm aware that I would have enjoyed being with you at that party. So I decided to use that little zing that I felt inside of me to motivate me to have a conversation with you. Again, it's not that you did something wrong or that you meant to hurt me, but can we talk about where we are in our getting to know each other process and what kinds of expectations we can have for each other? Hmm. Okay. So curious what you think of that script. (laughs) So If you were to open the door to a conversation in that way, which is a relational opening, it's a gentle opening, it's a super curious opening. If you were to do that, 
And what you got back from him was an eye roll and defensiveness and something like, ugh, I can't do anything right. Or you're being so extra. That reaction from him to your gentle inquiry is really, really, really important data for you. It's him showing you that he's the kind of person who tends to act on his reactivity instead of studying his reactivity. That's what we always talk about in our relational self-awareness work, studying our reactivity, knowing that our reactions to whatever somebody else is saying or doing say something important to us about our wounds, about our beliefs, about our fears, et cetera, et cetera. Blaming you for being so extra closes the door to a valuable conversation about why you might be feeling sensitive to feeling left out, why he might be sensitive to feeling like a disappointment to you, and what the two of you want to begin to expect from each other or ask of each other at this point in your relationship. And all of that learning that comes from that whole next step you taking the risk of raising your concern is not ever, ever, ever going to happen if you simply stick to a, if they wanted to, they would label, right? If you just kind of stick that label, if they wanted to, they would on this incident, you miss that whole portal, that whole opening to that kind of rich conversation. And the point is there are insights and learnings available to you when and if you resist the urge to give in to a sweeping declaration and instead turn towards the other person with a curious query. Okay, there is one more part that I want to cover with you before I let you go for the week. (laughs) I'm calling this part, Can't, Won't, Aren't. And it's all about challenging you to notice the story that you attach to behavior the meaning you make out of behavior, someone else's behavior or your own behavior, and how that story, how the language you use, can't, won't, aren't, how that language holds the power to shape your next step. I'm going to talk to you about all three of those. Can't, won't, aren't. They can't give this to me. They won't give this to me. They aren't giving this to me. And then where each of these language choices leaves you. Okay, so we're going to talk about it in terms of like receiving, what you're not receiving, what somebody else isn't giving to you. And whether the language that you're using opens up curiosity or shuts it down, whether the language you're using draws you closer to that person or pushes you further away. This is not about right and wrong, the language you should use, the language you shouldn't use. I just want you to start to pay attention to the power of the language, the power of the story that you tell, because I want you to remember how very, very powerful you are in your relationships. So I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do about it. I'm just offering you a framework that helps you notice how you are oriented in a frustrating moment so that you kind of ground yourself and then make your decisions of what to do about it from that grounded, aware place. Your decision might be to ask again for what you need or to ask differently. Your decision might be to open up how you're feeling. Your decision might be to cut your losses and walk away. But I want to give you a process that helps you slow down and notice what's happening inside of you rather than getting solely focused on what the other person 
you know, the other person's behavior. And then after that, we're going to flip the script and talk about the power of the language you use when you're the one being asked to give or do. When you're being asked to be the giver and you cannot give the person what they want, or you will not give the person what they want, or you are not giving the person what they want. And I'm going to talk you through the impact that each of these language descriptors, each of these ways of describing it might have on you. And again, this is not me giving you a guilt trip. It's not me telling you what you should or shouldn't do. It's about me asking you to practice relational self-awareness and notice how you language even to yourself the fact that there's something that someone else wants from you that you are not providing. Okay, so I'm going to talk you through all this now, but you should know that if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will receive the companion worksheet for this episode in your inbox. And the companion worksheet this time around is this framework in the form of a table. If you know me, you know I love tables. <laughs> I love frameworks. So this is a, a nice, juicy table for you that has this whole next piece kind of all spelled out for you to think about and work with and play with. So the worksheet is going to be in subscribers inboxes today and also next week. If you want to subscribe and receive this worksheet next week, you'll find the link to do so in the show notes or you just head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe. Okay. So let's imagine that you're not getting what you need from somebody, okay? We'll keep it in the intimate partnership framework. So when you say this person cannot give me what I need, the meaning is they can't give me what I need because it's not a value of theirs. They don't value giving this in a relationship. Or you're saying that it's not within their personality constellation. They just, they can't give me this because it's it's just not who they are. Or what you're saying is they can't give me this thing that I want or need because it's not within their skill set, right? They just can't do it. They don't know how to do it. They aren't able to do it. And where does that leave you? If your story is this person can't give me what I need, where does that leave you? The questions that you then would ask yourself if this person can't give you what you need is, one, can you source this need elsewhere? Is there somebody else in your life who could give you this need? Can you accept this person for who they are? Can you really truly accept and make peace with the fact that you are with somebody who cannot meet this need of yours? Can you really accept rather than fighting reality? Can you really let go of the wish that this could be different? If you say they can't give me what I need, then the ball is in your court to work on accepting them for who they are. Number three, can you begin then to appreciate what is great about them? What is great about the relationship? Right? If the story is this person cannot give me what I need in this area, okay. Now the ball's in your court to begin to work on appreciating what is actually great about them, what they can give you, and what's great about their relationship. And the last question, question four, is can you remember 
that you are not able to meet all of their needs either. If the language you're using is, my partner can't meet this need of mine. Okay, well, ball's in your court now, and you are challenged to remember that you aren't able to meet all of your partner's needs either. Right? It doesn't just go in one direction. Okay, so now let's try won't. If the language you're using is, my partner won't give me what I need. What you're saying is, my partner is blocked in some way. There's a block for them. Something is keeping them from giving me what I need, right? It's possible, but there's a block. And you can get curious about the block. So if my partner were to give this to me, who are they afraid they become, right? What's Is the block about fear? A fear that if they meet your need in this way, they become dot, dot, dot. Are they perhaps afraid of meeting your need because of what you might do then, right? Is your partner thinking to themselves, if I give my partner what they need, I'm afraid that my partner is going to start to dot, 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 right? Something's happening there. When the language is, my partner won't give me what I need, there's a sense that there's a block there, there's a willfulness, there's a refusal, something is getting in the way. And certainly, listen, if it's like a conscious willfulness, now we're getting in the territory of abuse, aren't we? Abuse is willful deprivation, right? In order to achieve some kind of end goal, like control, like hurt, like harm, right? But basically what I'm trying to say here is that if your experience is, my partner won't, they they could give me what they need, but they won't give me what, what you're speaking to is there's a block. Something has gotten in the way. So where does that leave you? Well, if your partner is blocked, then one option available to you is patience. What might it be like for you to practice patience without feeling like a sucker or a doormat? Could you hold on to your self-respect while also being patient with a partner who's experiencing a block? What about therapy? Could you enlist the help of a third party, a couples therapist perhaps, who could help your partner work on loosening the grip of this block, this fear of if I start to give my partner this need, if I start to meet my partner's need, I'm afraid of becoming or I'm afraid of what they'll do to me, et cetera, et cetera. You also can sit with the question of what's it like for you to consider accepting that you are partnered with somebody who has some healing to do, right? There's some untapped potential. Their full potential as an intimate partner is being blocked because they are not in this moment committing themselves to a journey of healing that would loosen the grip of that block. Okay, so what's it like for you to imagine that? To imagine being with a partner who maybe has more potential in them than they are able to fully express right now. And then I guess the last question would be, what does it mean for you to be partnered with somebody who's aware that you have a need, who's aware that there's some work they could do to perhaps become better able to meet that need, but who just won't, right? Where does that leave you? I imagine there's feelings of frustration, some feelings of pessimism, some feelings of sadness, right? It's very, I think that can feel, even even though your partner's block is not probably a block that you put there. 
you still are the collateral damage of that, right? And if they won't turn towards their block, address their pain, address their wound, then what what has to happen inside of you to be okay with the fact that you are partnered with somebody who's unwilling to do work that could be done, right? And, and it may be that's just a bridge too far for you. Okay, aren't or isn't. My partner isn't giving me what I need. My partner isn't giving me what I'm asking for. When you language it in this way, you're sticking with something that's pretty simple, right? You aren't traveling too far inside of your partner's head. You aren't spending a lot of energy sussing out, you know, what's going on. Is it a can't? Is it a won't? Are they being willful? Is this beyond their abilities? You're just sticking with the facts. They just are not meeting this need. You are simply in a place of description. My partner is not meeting this need. There's really no hypothesis. You're not kind of doing that hermeneutic labor of trying to figure out what's the block and, you know, is it beyond their scope and should I wait or da da. You're just simply describing. And I think this can actually, the, the reason I broke it out this way can't, won't, isn't, or aren't is because if you try at least for a while, to get yourself out of the mental gymnastics of what's happening and why aren't they? And, you know, if this happened, then could they? And if you just move to a place of describing, my partner isn't, my partner isn't meeting this need of mine. My partner isn't meeting this need of mine. There's a bit of relief that comes for you. You can start to step back and just observe and notice. So, If you move into that language of my partner isn't meeting my need, where does that leave you? I think it leaves you simply in a place of noticing, simply in a place of pondering, simply in a place of considering, assessing, evaluating, wondering, right? You're sort of sitting in this middle ground of just noticing, huh, my partner isn't meeting this need of mine. Okay, so now what, right? So I think that if you're feeling stuck and you're finding yourself agonizing between can't and won't and what if, I invite you to shift your language, make that choice to move to a place of languaging it just like my partner isn't meeting this need of mine and stay there, practice that for days or weeks and notice what happens inside of you. Do you feel less resentful? Do you feel a bit more peace? Do you perhaps notice a new way forward that you cannot notice when all of your energy is going into diagnosing if it's willfulness or a lack of ability? Okay, so let's now, last thing, flip the script and let's play with some language that you might be using for yourself when your partner is asking something of you. Okay, so your partner is asking you to meet one of their needs and you're saying, I can't meet my partner's need versus I won't meet my partner's need versus I am not meeting my partner's need. So let's kind of play with those three paths. So if you're saying, I can't meet my partner's need, what you're saying is, 
It's just not a value of mine. I don't value that behavior. I don't value that element of relationship. Therefore, I can't meet this need. Or you're saying something about, this is not within my personality constellation. This is not who I am. I am not somebody who can meet a need like this, right? I can't meet this need because it's just not me. And P.S., I'm not interested in this becoming me. Or you're saying, it's not within my skill set. I can't meet this need because I literally don't know how to meet this need. It's beyond my capacity. And dot, 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 I'm not interested in learning how to do it, right? I'm not available for that kind of stretch, for that kind of learning, for that kind of practice. I can't. It's kind of the end. That's you know, a very short and very complete sentence. Okay, so where... Where does this leave you? If that's your story, I cannot meet this need of my partners. Can you be clear and compassionate? I understand that you want or need this, and I am sorry that I can't give it to you, and I'm also clear that I cannot give it to you, right? Can you hold on to your clarity and your compassion? Can you empathize, said a different way, can you empathize with their wish while accepting and holding on to what is real and true for you, given who you know yourself to be. Can you be self-compassionate and accepting of your own limitations? Can you see yourself as a good person, even as you can't meet this need? Can you be whole as you are and unable to meet your partner's need? Can you allow your partner to source this need elsewhere? If you can't provide this need and they can't let go of this need, how might they meet this need in a way that doesn't damage the relationship, erode trust, erode closeness, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, won't. I won't meet this need of my partner. So if you're saying that, I won't meet this need, what you're saying is that you, there's a block there for you. Right. What you're saying is, if I get, I, I won't meet this need of yours because if I do, I'm afraid that I become dot dot dot, or I won't give this to you because if I give it to you, I'm afraid that you're going to dot dot dot. So sit in that place. What is that won't about for you? That's sort of a you're recognizing a block that you have, or you're recognizing you're bumping up against some willfulness inside of you right? Like, uh uh-uh, I won't, I could do it. I know how to do it. I can imagine myself doing it. I just won't do it. Why? Are you too angry? Are you too afraid? Right? What is, what is the block there? Can you start to really like feel into the texture and tone of your won't? If your language is, I won't meet this need of my partners, where does that leave you? Can you at least talk to them about your block? Can you own that you are blocked? You know, we're to to be human is to experience blocks. You're blocked because you're human. So can you at least be real about that? No, I I am just I'm aware that I could and I'm not, and that's because I won't, I just won't do it right now. Okay, why not? What is the block? Can you own the block? Describe the block? Can you be clear with your partner about the degree to which you wanna address the block? How much motivation do you have to address? this block inside of you. How could your partner support you? Is there support you could get from your partner that would increase your motivation to address this block? Can you also identify what 
just a micro movement would look like for you? What would a little bit of progress, like how, if you were starting to kind of chip away at this block of yours, if you were starting to take a little step towards trying to meet your partner's need in this way, what would that look like? What would be the the first little bit of shift that you might make? And I want you to identify that because I want you to feel really freaking brave and proud when you take that little bit of risk. And I want your partner to notice and celebrate because noticing and celebrating is how we stay motivated to keep on changing. And if you're going to be chipping away at a block in the service of your relationship, in the service of meeting your partner's need, you sure as shit need a cheering section for you as you do that. Okay. Last one is just, I am not, I am not meeting my partner's need. Here again, like even as I say it, I feel almost like a drop in my shoulders, just like I did last time around when we were saying that you know, they are not meeting my need. Here is the flip. I am not meeting my partner's need. When you language it that way, you're dropping all the mental energy that goes into figuring out if it's a can't or a won't. And you're just sitting with description. I am not meeting my partner's need. Okay. What's going on there? Perhaps you have yet to make it a priority, right? It just isn't a priority to you. Okay, why not? That's a good question. I am not meeting my partner's need because I'm too distracted. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. Uh, my priorities are elsewhere. What is, what's happening there? And again, whatever inquiry comes from framing it that way, I am not meeting my partner's need. And now you're doing some inquiry into why you aren't meeting your partner's need. That inquiry has to be gentle, AF, really gentle inquiry. Why? I'm so distracted. I'm so busy. I'm so afraid. You know, it's hard for me to let go of this resentment. I am not, I am not, I am not, I am not meeting this need. Okay. Where does it leave you? I think here again, owning it is huge. The willingness to say, I see it, you see it. I know it, you know it. I am not meeting this need of yours. That has relational impact. It's like when two people acknowledge the reality for what it is, that changes it. Can you at least own that you know what your partner's talking about and you are not doing it? Okay, no judgment, no explanation, no defensiveness, just description. Okay, and then can you also avoid over-promising and under-delivering. I think that tends to be something that we can slip into. When you know you're not meeting your partner's need and they know you're not meeting their need, I think that one of the ways that you may try to solve the moment is by just promising, okay, I will, okay, I will, with no actual plan on how you're going to execute on that. So can you at least avoid over-promising and under-delivering and just stay with that place of, Yes, you're right. I see it. I know it. I am not meeting this need of yours. And then maybe also, last idea here, is is there a system that you could set up that helps you prioritize it? If it's a need of theirs that is not a need of yours or is not a priority of yours, but because this person is your partner and because they're saying it matters, 
What's a little system, a note in your phone, a timer on your phone, a note in your calendar, a post-it above the you know kitchen sink, whatever, something that cues you to make this a priority. Setting up a system does not mean you're faking it or that you get any less credit. <laughs> needs met, our needs met does not matter the method we use to meet a need. So is there a little system you could set up that would help you? You don't have to feel badly that this is not as much a priority for you as it is for your partner. You can instead feel proud that because it matters to them, you care so much about them and their happiness that you have created a clever little system that helps you keep their need at the top of your list. Okay, so bottom line is this framework gives us a chance to notice and work with our assumptions. And it's so understandable, especially in early relationships, that there's so many assumptions in a relationship. It's hard to get to know somebody. It's hard to figure out if you can trust them, whether their actions are aligning with their words. And so all of this talk about, you know, needs being met or not met, expectations being fulfilled or not fulfilled, you know, as we're adding some nuance here, I'm really trying to help us move past that simplistic, if they wanted to, they would, and to recognize that we as humans are pretty complicated. And so motivation is complicated and constraints are complicated. And that phrase, if they wanted to, they would, assumes that you're being deprived of something that's possible. But it's also a phrase where you are giving away your agency. And if you aren't willing to start a conversation or share how you feel, you end up putting yourself entirely at their mercy. Okay, so we are moving towards the end of this episode. So we've talked about that phrase, if they wanted to, they would. We've talked about some more complicated and nuanced ways of thinking about this really complicated thing that happens around give and take, expectations, and needs. And I've given you some tools and some frameworks to help you kind of get beneath and beyond this simplistic idea of if they wanted to, they would. And listen, even if after all of this, what you learn is that this person that you're with actually does not want to be with you or does not want the same type of relationship that you want or is not able to meet your needs in a way that is essential and sustainable, that sucks, right? That does suck. That's really unfortunate. But what I want to recommend here, as hard as it is, is to try time and time again to shift from shame to disappointment. There's a world of difference between being ashamed of who you are because this relationship didn't work out and being disappointed that the relationship didn't work out. Do you feel the difference? I hope so. It's hard to find uh, and it's hard to build a relationship that is sustaining and it's so personal. Um, we're all looking for different kinds of things and we don't always have control over how our soul connects with another person's soul and whether meeting them at this time in our life is conducive to building a relationship with them. And that is what my wonderful podcast guest, Susan Kane from a couple of months ago would call bittersweet. So I hope this episode has helped you kind of complicate the view you have about some of these frameworks we bring into intimate relationships and that we sort of take as gospel. 
and I hope you feel empowered to write your own story and find your voice. And most of all, I hope that you celebrate yourself when you are brave enough to communicate, especially in those fairly early phases of relationship, because it's a beautiful expression of self-compassion and a wonderful investment in a budding relationship, no matter the outcome. Thank you for being here with me this week. And until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.